the Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. New Zealand's premier documentary film festival. Podcasts still haven't been fixed. If you're listening live, if you listen to this on a podcast, uh, obviously we've fixed it. I'm jumping up and down about it as much as I can and uh, rest assured the elves are working on it. My program's not the only one on Radio Live, but, um, you know, I've sque- uh, don't worry, I am the squeaky wheel. Uh, I've just got to be careful not to be too annoying about it. Uh, okay. I'm doing this on your behalf. Podcasts are important and um, it's, yeah, it's a hassle. So I'm really, really, really sorry on behalf of... Um, I'm not I'm sorry on behalf of Apple. It might be their problem, but anyway. I think you get the sentiment. All right, Taranaki have been given a bunch of money because they are the ones with their hands up that were best dressed to say, we're going to get rid of the predators. Let's full-on military operation, uh, pest-free 2050. You can't dither, and they ain't. How come them? That later on... Uh, this hour. Next up, though, we look at the world of human statistics, polls, and the results they tell us about humankind with Jonathan Dodd. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. Get a free program at dockedge.nz. Human statistics with Jonathan Dodd, Research Director of Ipsos New Zealand. They ask people what they think, and Jonathan tells us what the answers are. Hello, Jonathan. Yeah, good morning, Graham. Um, what Americans are thinking about their country now, I would uh, assume this is rather polarised uh, due to the current administration and um, what people think yeah. of it. Yeah. Maybe, maybe not as much as you think. So, yeah, we recently did a survey of 1,200 Americans and it follows all the right rules of making sure it's a very good, high-quality sample and all the rest of it. Um, and, yeah, obviously Democrats are more out of favour with the way the country's going and, and in favour of, Demo- of um, Donald Trump, of course, and, and alternatives. But a lot of Republicans aren't too happy either. So when you ask people, for example, you know, do you think the US is on the wrong track? And, I mean, we've asked this question in New Zealand too in the past, and last year a lot of New Zealanders said New Zealand wasn't really on the right track. So 53% of Americans said the country was on the wrong track, compared to only 35% who said it's on the right track. So, yeah, you've definitely got a, um, a minority of people thinking things are going all right. But you've still got 28% of Republicans saying the country's on the wrong track. Yeah. So, yeah. So that, that's polarised, but... Yeah, that is polarised, but um, yeah, Donald Trump is, uh, well, his administration, he and his administration, I sometimes think they're nominally Republican. It's the banner under which he was elected, but um, it's it, it's something else entirely, really. It's not a traditional Republican by any means. No, and I mean, 19% of Republicans disapprove of him. Oh. So um, it is 52 against him versus 45 for him overall, so I think that's really interesting that there are still 45% of Americans who approve of Donald Trump and that has not really been um, changing in the last couple of months and Mm. in fact it's actually highest now since March last year and it's been going up since December so you think of 
the prostitutes and the FBI that and CIA that, and he's been going up and up since December. He's highest than ever. So, yeah. I mean, we can sit here from our side of the world and think it's just going down the toilet. But the Americans are going, oh, they're doing all right. Yeah, he's different. Maybe they just like different. Okay. Well, uh, but, but then you can get personal too because, of course, um, there's, there's policies. Yeah. You know, so most people really just like the way you managed healthcare reform, that's fifty four percent. So we had this really nice question there just saying, um, how do you think about the way he treats people like you? So it's all right, you know, people like you and that personalized it. Fifty six percent disapproves of that. Right, but treats people like me, is that the question? Sorry, yeah. just just fading yeah. out. And there. and I mean admittedly most people aren't psychopathic millionaires. So, um so I guess most people aren't like him. Okay, yeah, and 50, 52% yeah. think he's uh, perceived corrupt. to be corrupt, right? Yep, yep. But hey, that's fake news. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, the economy could go well, either because of or despite Donald Trump, and um, uh, he does get a lot of approval for economic matters. Well, yeah, he does. So sixty percent said, um, you know, sure we can, you know, we can focus on why he gets disapproval. But sixty percent said they approved of what he's been doing in terms of creating jobs. But of course, if you look at the news, you often find out that all the big news um, and job creation activities that have been going on have been years in the pipeline. It's not just like he turned up and then got jobs. But of course, it's not necessarily um, what actually happens. It's how it's perceived to happen, of course. Um, 59% approving of the way he's dealing with ISIS and terrorism. So, um, mm. yeah, they sit there and go, well, this is bad and he's dodgy and corrupt and all the rest of it and, and what have you, but I've got a job and we haven't been attacked on our soil by ISIS yet, so yeah. it must be going all right. Yeah, yeah. You might not like the guy, but that's it's different if you're living in the country and how is it going. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the over-optimism tendency as far as a cognitive bias goes. People tend to believe yeah. things will work out in a positive manner. Yeah. And you think about it. If you didn't, why would you get out of bed in the morning? Yeah. You know, and for all that's going on in the world and the environment and all the rest of it, when you sit there, you know, a friend of mine just started a family and you think, you know, every generation is like, it's all going down the toilet and why would you do this and do that? But, you know, unless you believe that some positive outcome is going to come out of your actions, people wouldn't bother doing it. You think about everything you do. You raise your family because you think that it should come right. You get up and you search food and, and start families and invest in developing skills and all the rest of it on the assumption that it will pay off. Chances are, even though there is uncertainty in the future, it will pay off, which is why when people get depressed, inaction often comes comes out of it because mm. there's a perception of, of nothing will improve in the future. But of course, as we all know, there are the, there's a, a nice hopeful optimism which gets you doing things and there's uh, what you might call different, um, uh, people that live in a different reality <laughs> or they make poor quality decisions based on it. And, you know, gambling's a really good example about this. You know, you're optimistic and totally in the in the face of all the statistics and proof. Yeah. Um, and you can sit there going, well, I'm not going to gamble, so I'm all right. But you think about every investment that you make, poor investments that people make, buying lottery tickets, capital investing. And a favourite one of mine that was mentioned by a lecturer of mine back in the day, when you get married. Mm. You get people that marry when they're young, Generally, you've gone through the change of university or leaving home and seeing up life and all the rest of it and meet somebody they might have known for a couple of years and 
little hormones going everywhere and on that that really quite superficial basis think, yep, I'm going to make the commitment to um, be with you for the rest of my life through everything, which is the ultimate optimism, really. But, of course, when you talk to people who are getting married, they don't go, oh, I'm optimistic, I totally believe in this, and that's proof that you're <laughs> totally, you know, it's like the person getting married for the fourth time. You know, yeah. I think optimism is, is really working over experience there. Yeah, even, even sometimes people getting married to a person they've divorced previously. Oh, Elizabeth Taylor did that. It's amazing. <laughs> Because yeah. all the change that I've learned and so forth, yeah, mm. and and of course as we talk about these, it's like, well, you know, we, you don't want to become unoptimistic or depressing or always focus on the worst, or we wouldn't get anything done. But the key to really overcome optimism or try to mitigate it to make better quality decisions, one of the best ones is get the opinions of others. Yeah, because it's been proven that we are better at observing the flaws in other people than the flaws in ourselves. And other people will be less emotionally invested, so they can make more, um, more sort of, you know, careful decisions to ask what other people think, and invariably, if you get results or, or opinions that you dislike, you have to sort of think, well, why ask for opinions if you don't value them or think about them? And then even comes down to that old list, you know, when you're making a tough decision, you make that list of pros and cons, you know, what all the reasons for, what the reasons aren't, and that's, that's always a good good basis to try and get things going on paper and get the emotion out of the way and think more clearly. So yeah, the more important the decision is that we have to stop and think, well, yes, I think the best thing will come out of this because otherwise you wouldn't be thinking about it, but is it really going to be because I think and what's the consequence of failure, of course. Yeah. Oh, just regarding why you get out of bed, it was an interesting answer to the question, what is the meaning of life? Uh, I can't recall, was it Albert Camus or Jean-Paul Sartre? Some Johnny Frog, anyway. It was a damn good answer. He said, "Every the meaning of life uh, is the combination of the reasons why you didn't kill yourself today. I mean, it sounds awful, but, <laughs> but we'll I be brave. Yeah. I think that's Sartre, yeah. Yeah. And there's actually people, if you want to see a fantastic character study of this, uh, you probably heard of Neville Sheets book, On the Beach. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, and I heard about it forever, and then I finally got around to reading it the, um, last year, and of course, you know, in the face of impending doom and a radiation cloud about to kill everybody, mm. people, people were going to university to start new courses and get new, you know, and get new jobs, because you did sort of like this incredible positivism and against the face of impending doom, it's like, what do you do? And it's like, try to be normal, try to propose the future, try to ignore it. And it's, it's, you know, it's quite bizarre and sad, but it, it's the human nature. Yeah. You happen to be in his hometown, or what became his hometown, Melbourne. So there you go. Um, okay, this week in New Zealand, Jonathan? <laughs> yeah, I was reading a terrible case somebody may have seen recently about um, a rest home in Auckland that's been um, going through the ringer through some appalling treatment or, or lack of treatment of um, one of their residents. Mm. And it came in, and I've seen this kind of thing happening in the rest home sector um, elsewhere as well, um, where the cost cutting is getting really endemic in, in a lot of those areas. And it sort of brought to mind um, some conversations and means and so forth that I've seen in recent years particularly in the States where you've got a huge um, illegal economy of using illegal immigrants, you know, because it's just, you know, the whole, all the, you know, you, you know the, the Latina housewife, like on Family Guy and all the rest of it, you know, all these, all these illegal people working really cheap. And we love, and, and, and people say it's great, you know, I've got a nanny, is she expensive, you know, well, you know, I'm putting mum into a restaurant, oh, how much does it cost? 
And without thinking about it, people tend to really think about the price of these things. You know, the sort of big grudge purchases, people might rather be at home with their kids or rather their, their parent was at home, independent stuff, and so you end up having to spend money on daycare or elder care, so to speak, and cost comes into it. People, people talk about cost. Try to get the cheapest option. But if you flip it around and go, well, how, is important, how important is it for your kids or your, your elderly parents to have top-quality care? Well, of course, everybody's going to say it's really, really important. So you've got this classic disconnect in the industry, and I bet, bet the daycare and wrestling people know this as well, where people profess that it's really important to get the best quality care, and then they're reluctant to pay for it. Yeah. And you get that tension, and it really shows that disconnect um, that people often have to think about when they're looking at the difference between cost and value. Yeah. You know, how much do you value this oh, immensely? How much will you pay for it? Well, not that much. Yeah. And it's, it, it's a tough one for these outfits when they promote the quality all the time. And yeah. People sit there going, yeah, that kind of a thing. Which is why it's so important when, when people are looking at businesses or how much they pay for stuff to think about the value of it. What is it valuable to you rather than the actual cost of providing the service? And if they actually did that better. Overall, I think we'd better quality service everywhere and people would be happier because they're actually getting something according to the value they, they apply to it. Yeah, when it comes to this sort of thing, uh, the socialist in me comes out and uh, when things are this important, there should be standards. Anyway. Um... Yeah, but <laughs> I know what you mean, but that goes against that human thing about optimism that you want to get a just reward for doing your work. So yeah. if you perceive other people doing lesser quality or lesser valued work and getting paid the same that generates the problems and that's why communism is a fantastic idea at a high level yeah. and then when it gets into the personal level because we all want to, things to be fair to get just rewards for our extra work then it falls down and i <laughs> yeah you know, i want people who, who can't do anything about their lives to have a, a, a decent life as possible and that includes old people and children and things like that so but, okay but i also want to get a lot of better rewards because i think yeah. i'm working better than everybody else yeah. i don't want to have my my rewards reduced so somebody else can go up because yeah it's that difference between perceptions of fairness and just reward for hard work mm. and um and knowing that the whole community is enjoying it Okay, political okay, studies. Line, political studies with yeah. Jonathan Dodd. <laughs> okay, good one. Thank you very much, Jonathan Dodd. That's our human statistics from this week. Jonathan Dodd of Ipsos. Cheers. The weekend variety wireless with Dock Edge Festival. For details, visit dockedge.nz. Enviro News and issues on Radio Live. Friends, you owe it to yourself and your family to leave the congested city and enjoy what nature intended you to enjoy. News announced this week, lucky, 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 Taranaki have uh, been given substantial funds to start this project and I'm just so glad that someone's getting on with this in a, in a practical way. That is pest eradication or shall... To, be more accurate. Predator eradication with the goal of being predator free by 2050. It's a great goal whether we reach it by then or who knows. Maybe it'll be earlier, maybe it'll be later, but it'd be great if we could go in that direction. Yes, uh, the Department of Conservation has offered millions of dollars and Taranaki are ready to rip into it. Stephen Hall, Director of Operations, sounds suitably militaristic actually. The Taranaki Regional Council joins it. This must have been a great thrill for the people of Taranaki, Stephen. Thanks very much for having me on, Graham. 
I mean, there's been a lot of work over a very long period of time to get the region in a position where this project could be launched. And, um, yeah, I mean, this is a real credit to the people of Taranaki, the community, the landowners, that have been doing a lot of work, a lot of pest control work, a lot of predator control work over a very, very long period of time and have put us in a position where we're the first cab off the rank in terms of receiving money from the government's predator-free 2050 initiative, coupled with, with money from, uh, from the community so from Taranaki Regional Council and a significant amount from our landowners as well, to over the next few years to target possums, stoats and rats with the aim of working towards a predator-free Taranaki. Right. Teacher's pet, what makes you such the favoured one? I would imagine a region like Northland, it's a peninsula, you can cut the damn thing off, would look a far more feasible first go at this. Why Taranaki? You've got a massive border with Wanganui, King Country, all of that. So that's a really good question. Um, it's a so brilliant a, question. A lot of it comes down to a proven track record and building from a well-established base. So in Taranaki, across significant chunks of our landscape, there has been predator control programs going for a long, long time. So one of those is what we call our possum self-help program, and that's across massive areas of our rural landscape, so across our farms. It's over 250,000 hectares already and that has got possums at really, really low numbers. We've also got urban programs as well, which are a bit more recent, targeting possums and rats also. So there are existing programs to build on, and the most important thing with this is that you need buy-in and community support because everybody has to be involved if we're going to succeed in this task. So that was one of the key reasons why Predator Free 2050 thought that Taranaki was a good place to start. And yeah, I agree with you that Northland is a bit more of a peninsula, but Taranaki is also a bit out on a limb and has got some defendable boundaries. So we've got opportunities that we can roll this out in a staged way and defend the line as we go. It's never been attempted on, on this scale before and in this landscape before. So yeah, we're absolutely trailblazing um, and we'll take one step at a time and we'll learn a hang of a lot. Uh, I mean, the way that we start this, I'm sure, will be very different to the way we, uh, way we end up doing it. Probably even in a year's time, we'll be learning an enormous amount. You say they're defendable boundaries. How are they defendable? I mean, there are techniques being trialled in New Zealand at the moment. I mean, you will have heard of, I mean, I'm sure many people have, of methods where you put fences up. Uh, you know, we've got pest-free sanctuaries and things like that in New Zealand. But there are other methods being trialled in New Zealand at the moment around what they're calling virtual barriers. Geographical features like rivers and mountain ranges and things like that to act as natural barriers, but then also using virtual barriers of an enormous amount of often traps traps that catch these predators. Once you've got rid of them out of a particular area, you have them in place to, uh, essentially, they're like, they're like the landmines that mean nothing can get through, nothing can get back in. And you also have a network of devices that are remote sensing, so camera devices and things like that, which can detect predator numbers at really, at really low densities. So there's been quite a lot of that work trialled in different places around New Zealand, and we'll be using some of those things to enable us to defend our boundaries. And obviously... We're hoping, and I know there are, there are lots of our neighbours that are looking at getting into this as well. And so the more of this that can be rolled out across the country, then obviously the easier it is to defend the edges. Yeah, and especially if other people defend theirs as well. We can that's, that's exactly right, yeah. jo join up the dots in the end. That would be marvellous. Mm. Um, so another thing at first that comes to mind is that Taranaki, I I've been there many times, 
you've got little pockets, a beautiful bush. Some actually may come as a surprise to a lot of people. Pukakura Park in the middle of New Plymouth is one of the very, very rare spots that have never been milled. It's ironic that it's in a city. Uh, you've got Pukiiti, Taranaki, the mountain itself, Rotokari Reserve, and the rest is grass and cows, isn't it? So Taranaki is about 700,000 hectares. Uh, you know, each hectare is sort of the size of a rugby field, so that's lots and lots of rugby fields. So about 700,000 rugby fields, in fact. So that's the size of our region. You are right, there are some real gems uh, in terms of indigenous biodiversity remnants, and obviously we've got the Monga uh, with Mount Taranaki in the middle of, uh, of a reasonably intensively farmed agricultural area, but actually our landscape is a real mosaic of native bush remnants of stream gullies that are woven in, in a network and a pattern across the landscape. And in the area that we call our ring plain, where most of uh, that comes off the mountain, uh, and most of our dairy farming activity occurs, that area there is, uh, has got lots and lots and lots of waterways, lots and lots of creeks that come off that mountain. There's over 500 of them. And over the last 25 years, our farmers, our dairy farmers of our region have been fencing and planting all of those streams and are nearly finished. And that there, in terms of native vegetation and creating corridors from the mountain down to the coast, and they're really important for our native biodiversity, um, enabling them to move from the mountain all the way down to the sea through different zones. By the time it's finished, and we're, we're aiming to have that program finished uh, by the end of the decade, there'll be over 30,000 hectares of new native vegetation created with that. So whilst some people think that, yeah, no, that's a dairy farming environment, if you go out and have a look or if you jump on a helicopter or a plane or something, you can really, really see those corridors down those streams and down those rivers and that hard work that those farmers have been doing creating those native bush areas. You know, obviously they, they are habitat for predators and so we'll be working with the farmers to build on the work they've been doing to enable them to control those predators in those areas. But all of that work's all voluntary and they've been doing it for a long period of time. So yes, there's quite a lot of native vegetation woven through our productive landscapes. But the vast majority of it is around Taranaki, the mountain itself. You can, you know, every time you fly over and over a plane, you can see that big circle with a bit of a spill in off it as well. But that's the bush. It would have been a temptation to say we'll fix that first because that is the vast majority of the native biodiversity, isn't it? So it is, and um, so that uh, that was one of the other reasons in terms of why Taranaki is that that there is a project as well and is part of this broader predator-free initiative. So uh, you might have heard of the Taranaki Monga project. That there is a collaboration between the Next Foundation, all of Taranaki Iwi, the Department of Conservation and some corporate players and they have got a, a program of work there to completely restore Mount Taranaki and get rid of all the predators on that mountain. And that's been going, they must be, have been going for a couple of years now. So they're one of our partners, and that's another reason why we think that there's an opportunity to build on that and to expand it beyond the mountain and, in, and into the, the urban and into the rural areas. Uh, financial detail, What? Uh, just to remind people how much money has been granted to get on with this. So the first step, and that's all it is, um, and it will be beyond this, but the first five years of this is going to cost about $47 million. About two-thirds of that is coming from the regional council and from our community, from our landowners, and the remaining third is coming from Predator 3 2050, so from the government's 
Predator Free 2050 Limited, which is the company that they set up under the previous government. Um, and that there is $11.7 million from them that uh, the Minister of Conservation announced at the launch of this project. Okay. Uh, one aspect that I think may be an unforeseen positive in getting a predator-free 2050 underway, and that is provincial envy. Uh, if this really works for you and things change, others will look with an envious eye and say, well, why not us too? And we should all say, yeah, why not? Absolutely. I mean, we all need to work collectively and, and learn from one another and things like that. But, yeah, I mean, we'd be kidding ourselves if we didn't think it was a bit of a competition. Yeah. Well, and that, a bit of nothing comp- like competition to get stuff like this oh, done. It's, it's, it's healthy, you know. You see provincial rugby and things like that. And, uh, you know, Taranaki prides itself. Oh, stop skating. And, and uh, so we'll pride ourselves on trying to be the first to do this too. <laughs> all right. Pukakura Park in the middle of town. It's a gorgeous, I was going to say a sanctuary, but it's not with the pests. It's part of Taranaki. It's got to be part of this plan, but it's in a very, very different situation than a similar little pocket like Rotakari in the south. I mean, both of the areas you mentioned are part of this program. Um, the Pukikura Park piece, uh, I mean, one of the first areas that we're starting to roll this out is in the New Plymouth urban area. And Pukikura Park, which is owned by uh, another one of our partners, the New Plymouth District Council. So that will be a, an important piece in it. Um, it's one of their reserves. I mean, the interesting little fact about the New Plymouth urban area is that it's got, in terms of native vegetation, it's got the most amount of native vegetation out of any city in New Zealand. Well, that's Pukekura Park. That nails it, doesn't it? Well, was, Pukekura Park absolutely contributes uh, to that in, in, a, in a decent way, but there's actually um, lots of other reserves going down uh, down our main creeks that go down through the through the gullies of New Plymouth. Mm. Um, and, you know, you can sit in New Plymouth. This was pretty unique when I... When I moved uh, to New Plymouth, you know, you can sit on your deck in the evening in the summertime and there's kedadu flying past and moorporks and things at night time. And, I mean, there's blue duck, not, not in New Plymouth yet, but they're working their way down from the mountain down some of the rivers towards New Plymouth. Um, you know, and, and being able to see and hear those sorts of things in a city, uh, a, a small city, but it's still a city, um, is pretty, pretty unique, really. It's a, t- a two-edged sword, really. You've got a built-up suburban area and a modern city like New Plymouth and that means things like rats especially can do really really well and you might think oh well it's a hopeless situation but you have got a lot of people as well if you get the people to buy in uh, you've got an army to fight them how will you do this in a suburban setting you'll have to do this in the suburban setting with ordinary old folk with their sections that are all around Pukakura Park. So you are absolutely right, um, and that's one of the key reasons that we are um, taking one of our first steps into the into the urban area. So Taranaki's got a population of just over 100,000, and you've got 60-odd percent of them living in New Plymouth. Um, so we need to engage with them, and they will be, uh, you, know, they're, they're, you know, they'll be a key part to seeing whether or not this can be successful. Our aim is to work one-on-one with landowners. Um, we'll have a whole range of ways of engaging with people in terms of running workshops and, uh, and, and just getting around door knocking and those types of things. But people can also go along to uh, the Taranaki Regional Council website, and there's information on... Uh, on this project there and you can also um, order traps and things online so coming back to your other part which is around how we're going to do this we're aiming to initially get a rat trap into every single household over the next few years 
the aim is to get about 5,000 of them over the next couple of years. So we've already got some out there already and they will be something that is reasonably easy for almost anybody to manage um, and that will have a, a decent impact on our rat population. In the reserves that are that, you know, like Pukikura Park and, and that are down in the gullies and things, we will be building on the existing possum, rat and mustelid, so stoats, ferrets and weasel program that are in those areas and putting more and more traps out. Um, it'll, all be, it'll all be trapping. Mostly they will be traps that are, um, are easy to use um, and that are user-friendly, um, you know, child-friendly and, 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 and pet-friendly and things like that as well. Okay, well, the... Effective envy is uh, starting already because I'm envious uh, that Taranaki has got the go-ahead and is, as you say, the first cab off the rank as far as this goes towards this goal of predator-free status by some time, at least having a good lash at it. What do you do next? You go to work on Monday and you've got this project. What do you do? Like I say, we, we've already we've already started, <laughs> so we're not starting from ground zero. But, but our, this is a game changer for you, isn't it? This is a game changer with this amount of money. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so basically, what we do is we accelerate what we've currently been doing, and the first place we're starting is in New Plymouth. But we've also got some other components. So we've got our rural area, which over the next few months will be working uh, in the Waiwakaio catchment, if anybody knows Taranaki. Sort of that goes down off the mountain uh, and it's about the area we're going to be working in there is about 20,000 hectares. And like I said earlier, we've got a, an existing possum program there, but we will be going out and working with landowners in that area to get out stoke boxes, uh, so stoke traps, um, and one of the important things with those uh, that is a real challenge um, in New Zealand is when you've got uh, you know, a property like a farm and you've got multiple traps on it, the most expensive part is the labour. So it's going around and setting them up and then uh, maintaining them, so going and checking them all, and you've got to go and check every single one of them. And one of the key things that we're uh, trialling in this project, um, and we've been doing a little bit of uh, trial work already, is the use of wireless nodes on those boxes. So they're a wireless device that can tell you when the trap's gone off and fires a signal off to a repeater station which sends a message to your smartphone uh, or to a, to, a, you know, to a tablet or a device or something telling you when and where, the, where that trap has gone off. So you can just go, I mean it cuts down on the labour massively, it's a much more efficient way to do things and you can go and just check that trap. You don't have to go around, you know, if you've got a farm of a couple of hundred hectares, mm. you don't have to go around um, and check, you know, your sort of 20 or 30 traps. You can just go to the ones that have gone off and you don't have to go to every one of them. So we'll be doing that and, and uh, over, the, over the next few months, um, those devices will be rolled out across, you know, like I say, large, large areas of the Taranaki rural landscape as well as the work I was talking about before in the urban area. One of the other things that we are going to be doing over the next year also is, um, and this is a, a key component of Predator Free 2050 and one of the milestones that they want to achieve in the next little while, is trying to eradicate one of these species in the landscape. And the one that we've chosen is possums. This has absolutely never been done before in a... Uh, in a mosaic of, of farmland, urban area and the mountains. So this will go down, again, for people that know Taranaki, uh, the Kaitaki Ranges, which go off Mount Taranaki uh, down to the coast at Oakuta, just slightly around the coast from New Plymouth. So Oakuta is a, is a small uh, coastal town. Uh, so it will include 
the large bush area of the Kaitaki Ranges uh, and it'll also include the farmland on both sides of those ranges and also the urban area at Oakuta. Um and we're going to try and get possums to zero so they are completely eradicated, you can't detect them at all and that will be done using a whole lot of different methods but it'll also be, uh, in terms of defendability, we'll be using some of the things I talked about before in terms of virtual trap networks and camera sensing devices and things to see whether or not uh, you know, there are any of the any, any possums still left in the area. Um, so that there's absolutely groundbreaking, and um, we'll learn a hang of a lot. And yeah, I'm, I'm sure that um, you know th- there'll be some real lessons for the way we do this work in the future, and also for how others do this sort of stuff in the future. Because if you can get the numbers down to nothing, and that'll you know that'll be the expensive part, but the maintenance then because you haven't got anything in there theoretically then that will be relatively uh, relatively cheap and if you can hold the line on that that will be groundbreaking for for New Zealand and and for the reason we're doing this um, which is which is absolutely for our biodiversity um, it's, it's not because we like killing things no. no of course not and it's surprising how quickly uh, changes can be observed and you know well before you ring the church bells to say there are no more possums uh, yeah. you'll be observable differences or at least there should be so good luck to you thank, um, you thank you very much Stephen Hall Director of Operations Taranaki Regional Council and we'll follow your progress with envy good one hey, thanks very much Graham and if you want to move to Taranaki you're more than welcome <laughs> You can help build a fence just over the Brindurwin Hills. That'll be really good, and we'll get Northland on the job. <laughs> hey, cheers. Okay, bye-bye. See ya, bye-bye. New Zealand is yours. Go there now. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. New Zealand's premier documentary film festival. It was peculiar news and... I suppose heartening after all these years that a serial killer was brought to justice and it was peculiar because he was found in an almost new, unique way, something new. Uh, kind of popular, the ancestry DNA testing things, and, you know, you're spitting something, if, if that's your, your chosen way of donating, uh, they go and find out your DNA and you can find out who's related to you more closely on the planet online. A copper, a detective, corner the Golden State Killer after all these years. And we have Jason Reeve of Ancestry.com with us. And we're also, we're touching on uh, New Zealand crime as well. Welcome, Jason, first of all. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for having me. I guess to clarify first and foremost, uh, it wasn't anything to do with Ancestry that this came about. Now, obviously, we do do genetic testing. We do that for for anyone who, who wants to go through Ancestry as a channel. And there are a number of companies that do this. Each of those companies have their privacy rules in place. So when that you say Ancestry, you mean your company? Correct. That's right. Yes. Now, as far as the Golden State Killer is concerned, the police actually used an open source platform to source that information. Uh, it wasn't Ancestry. So I guess it's important just to note that because you know, there was obviously some concern initially that people's data was being accessed on Ancestry, and, and that actually wasn't the case. So Cambridge it, Analytica all over again. Yeah, exactly right. And look, it's a fantastic example of how you know DNA can be used for law enforcement and come to a very you know successful end. But I do want to stress that it didn't have anything to do with ancestry on that front okay but didn't they find out who was related to him because you you can make it publicly it's up to the client right what what people can see and other people oh you can see if you're related to this person you get a message i've had this happen and you go and see who who you're related to exactly right exactly right so and that in theory 
that's a method that they went through, but they did it through another website. Because of the fact that we are a commercial company and we do have privacy policies in place, they couldn't do it through a website like Ancestry or any of our competitors. But the website that they did use was open source and it allowed them to go through that process. And yes, that is essentially how they found that killer. Oh, okay. Um, you would be bristlingly aware of privacy as well because of all those sort of things happening and, and what's happened with Facebook as well? Of course. Look, it's, it's a digital service. There are terms and conditions that you agree to when you use that service, just like any other digital service on the internet these days. Now, many of those digital services will own what you put up. So take Facebook, for example. You put a photo up. That photo is now owned by Facebook. And that's not uncommon in, in the digital world. With something like You DNA, don't even own your cell phone, actually. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, actually, you're exactly right. When it comes to something like DNA, the terms and conditions are that you still own that DNA. So obviously there are limitations to what a company like Ancestry can do with it. And further to that, you can have it destroyed at any moment. So you actually retain that control. If I wanted you to destroy my DNA, I thought you would have flushed it down the toilet anyway. <laughs> no, look, DNA is a rapidly moving field, so things are changing all the time. We don't know what the next breakthrough is going to be that's relevant to family history. So as far as the samples are concerned, we still have the samples. Now, obviously, that can make some people pretty uncomfortable. Uh, even providing the sample can be a stretch for some people. So if there is concern about us having either the sample or any of the records that come out of that, that can be requested to be destroyed at any time. And all they have to do is call our member services line. Mm. Uh, it's a free call and they just ask for that to be destroyed and it will be done immediately. Okay. Well, you said some people would find it, do find it difficult to provide a sample. Mm -hmm. Really? You just squab a bit inside your mouth. That's no, easy. So, so, <laughs> way to do it, isn't it? so our test is actually a spit test. Oh, uh, okay. It did used to be a swab. The end result is the same. We're looking for cheek cells. Uh, unfortunately, with the swab test, we found that there are a lot of, lot of errors that came out of that. The tests weren't processing, so we reverted to a spit test, and that's a lot more successful. Right. Um, now, for some people, especially when looking at the elderly, producing the amount of saliva that's required for a test like this is actually very, very challenging. Okay. And I suppose... If you've just had lunch, you might put in your sample and you find you're related to most of the sheep in New Zealand. Yeah, exactly right. Well, this is one of the only rules about taking the DNA test is that you can't eat or drink 30 minutes beforehand. We, we certainly don't want you coming out as 30% banana. No, uh, <laughs> although we are probably... We do share a lot of DNA. Yes, that's right. You're 60% banana. <laughs> I, well, just on that, when I got my results back, I thought, oh, it'll just be a big red blob in the middle of Africa because I share 98% of my DNA with chimpanzees. Yes, wow. Obviously... Um, I mean, you work DNA, on the other 2%. Yeah, the DNA test is um, two, two things I can say there. The DNA test covers a specific timeline. Now, you know, to, to a respect, we all go back to a similar place on Earth, but obviously there are lots happened since then. And so this DNA test can go back about as far as 2,000 years. But as you just said as well, we try to remove some of those similarities so we're focusing on an individual and what they have that's unique. Okay. What do you do? What's your job at Ancestry.com? <laughs> my job's content acquisition. So what that means, it's, it's my role in Australia and New Zealand to seek out original records. So we're talking original paper records, volumes, things like that, and actually have them digitised so they can be put up on the Ancestry website. Okay. Um, which is, it's a great job to do because often archives will have huge collections uh, that are in an original format. And obviously archives seek to preserve those records. And when they're in that original format, they're quite volatile. They can break down, mould, etc. So working with archives is very rewarding because I can help digitise those projects. Uh, and sometimes there'll be records that are great to go on Ancestry. Sometimes there's records that are not so great. And we can do a little bit of both to help an archive along. So it just means that we're continuing that preservation story. Yeah, well, for people who don't know, it's, it's not just you spitting your thing. You get your DNA results back with a map of people 
alive on the earth that are most closely related to you. That's kind of like the starting point. You add in all this other research, family trees, who was born where and when. We started just as a family history organisation uh, where roles like mine sought out those original records, had right. them digitised, put them up online for people to access and they'd use those records to build their family trees. Since that time, we've now had DNA come into the picture. And what that DNA does is essentially looks at your genetic material and tries to align that to your paper records, but also genetically where you've come from around the world. Now, when I started my family history journey, uh, I had a grandfather that was renamed it when he was quite young. So I didn't have any connection to that side of the family whatsoever. Right. And it took me a good 18 months to actually connect to a family member living within that family that I could talk to about my family history. The DNA product tries to expedite that by connecting you to people that you're genetically related to very, very quickly. All right. You can call me um, Your Majesty, if you like, because I am the king on the rightful king of England. Did you know that? <laughs> Are you really? Yeah. <laughs> Those imposters the other week in that Norman bloody keep. Get out and let us back. Your acquisitions job mm -hmm. uh, of records and stuff, you now have stories from the New Zealand Police Gazette Records, 1878 to 1945. How do you get your hands on this as a private company? So, as I said, we work in partnership with archives and sometimes archives are seeking to expose these records more generally so people are aware of the history and the stories and they can access them for family history. Sometimes we work more closely with an archive, as I said, to digitise some collections for them and in return they'll give us access to this collection to put on Ancestry. Mm. It really depends on what the project is, but obviously the end goal for all of this is exposure to these records and letting people use these records for their family history. Okay. People shouldn't be afraid of their ancestors being criminals. You can look at it as good and bad, but really it's just a story, and it's a story of how we got to where we are today. Yeah. And often there's a lot of lessons in those stories. So having records like these that you know might err on the side of you know, negative stories, still very important to understand them. And if, obviously if these are your family members, you know, these might not be stories that were passed down orally. So it's good to have access to records and be able to look into what actually occurred at those times. Yeah, and one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter as well, depending on how things turn out. Yeah, always multiple sides to a story. Um, in 1920, Charles Ewing Mackay, Mayor of Whanganui, shot the returned soldier and poet Walter Darcy Cresswell. Good God. Cresswell alleged that Mackay had made homosexual advances towards him in the mayoral office. This ended up in a murder. Good God. Yeah, so speculation, obviously, that there was blackmail involved, but it's a colourful story. It's the sort of thing that you'd expect to see in a movie. But this is real life, and these are the things that have happened anywhere around the world, but this sort of collection captures these kind of stories. And it's, it's fascinating for general interest, it's fascinating for history, but you can imagine if that was your ancestor, that would be something that would actually want, make you keep wanting to dig even further again. Yeah. Uh, you've got the details of the murderer there. He went, ended up in Berlin. Pleaded guilty to attempted murder, called no defence, convicted, sentenced to 15 years hard labour. Following his release from prison in 1926, he sought a new life in England. By 1928, working in Berlin as an English teacher. How it ended up, Mackay was shot dead by Berlin police, apparently taken for a rioter while covering May Day riots between communist irregulars. The police, good God. And there's a number of records relating to him. Again, he has a mugshot on there as well. So, you know, this is, this is a time where 
you know, you might not have photos of, of some of these ancestors. And mm. so capturing a mugshot is fantastic. But even, even beyond that, uh, there are cases where just a description of a convict or a criminal is recorded. And I know from my personal experience of an ancestor where I have no images at all, but there is a personal description of him in the police gazettes in Australia. And that was fantastic for me because now I have a description of what that person looked like. So this collection is great for that because it does give information. If there's no mugshot, it details information of what someone looks like as well. Thank you very much, Jason. Jason Reeve of Ancestry dot com if someone is on Ancestry.com or does this sort of thing. How do they access this stuff? All they need to do is go to Ancestry.com.au uh, so it's the .au site that we use here in New Zealand uh, and then they can just start searching from there. So the, the way the website works is it will typically get them to start building a family tree to begin with because obviously the Ancestry platform is a family tree building, family history building website. Mm -hmm. So they'll go in, they'll add in maybe parents' names, grandparents' names to create a very basic tree and from that point on they start looking at records and trying to build the tree based on those records. Right. So let's just say um, this Charles McKay was somebody's ancestor. You know, if they had a feeling that that was, you know, shared surname and they wanted to investigate that further, add in parents, grandparents, and start building the tree backwards using those historical records, and they can use that for, do that for 14 days with a free trial. And then if they're enjoying what they're doing, they can start to subscribe from that point on. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Your Majesty. <laughs> thank you. I'm calling you Your Majesty, but I'm just assuming you have some European ancestry? Uh, look, I'll accept the title for sure. I have 2% uh, Britain, mm. so let's just go with that. That'll do. <laughs> um, you are almost certainly directly descended from Charlemagne. I'm so, sure. So there you go. <laughs> Thank you very much, Jason. Thank and, you, um, yeah, knock yourself out with the Police Gazette record records 1878 to 1945.